electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The rally in stocks, the S&P Closing in on that new record high, we'll debate the markets today with two very special guests. Trians Nelson Peltz and Greenlight's David Einhorn, both joining us exclusively today. The Investment Committee and our own Jim Cramer here as well. They'll join me in just a bit. First, let's check stocks. They are in the midst of a five-day winning streak, 45, 36, 95. That is the S&P's closing high. You can see we are above that. The Dow above its as well, 35,600 and 19. Take a look at the 10-year, approaching 164, and that is a key level to watch as well. Let's get right to it, though, and welcome in our first headliner of the day, David Einhorn of Greenlight Capital. It's good to see you again. It's been a while. Welcome. Good to see you, Scott, and congratulations on your 10 years. Appreciate it very much. I have your most recent letter in front of me, David, uh, that just dropped this morning, and it's clear that you are very much focused on inflation. You say, quote, inflation is here and it appears poised to worsen. You don't think it's as transitory as the Fed says. Why do you think the Fed is so wrong? Well, I don't think they have any choice. I think the Fed is committed to a position that just has to hope that inflation goes away because they don't really have the stomach to fight it. So they have to obfuscate the data. They have to kind of hope it hope it goes away and kind of kind of see what happens. But when you look at what's actually going on, there's both the monetary and the fiscal policies which are causing inflation, but also there's a real shortage of things. And it's not just bottlenecks. Some of it comes from a lack of investment because companies that actually make make things don't get a lot of investment in the market. And so they have very high cost of equity and so they choose not to add capacity. And so that's why we have shortages of all kinds of things from, from energy to materials, to, to a lot of goods and companies that, that many people think are just sort of boring, and so they trade at low multiples. And so the companies, the managements don't invest in their businesses. You're pretty critical of, of Fed Chair Jay Powell. You say, quote, he hasn't lifted a finger to fight inflation. Instead, he has maintained a policy designed to create inflation. I don't know if you saw Paul Tudor Jones on the network this morning. He called Fed policy the most inappropriate monetary policy of his lifetime. Let's listen to what PTJ said. This morning, David, and we can react on the other side. And I'd like your thoughts, too. I think the thing that to me is the number one issue facing the ministry investors is inflation. And it's pretty clear to me that inflation is not transitory. It's here to stay. And it's probably the single biggest threat to certainly financial markets. And again, probably, I think, to society just in general. It sounds to me like you and Paul Tudor Jones agree almost 100 percent on the issue of inflation. I, I guess that's right. I agree with everything I just heard him say. 
The, the problem is, is, is you say that they don't have the stomach. I think that's the word you used, making the point that you think they're afraid to do anything because it may cause a recession and cause the stock market to crash. Yeah, that's right. When, um, when this chair had a tighter monetary policy in 2018 and the stock market began going down and he began to face uh, criticism from President Trump and from others, his response was to just get out of the kitchen. And he pivoted, changed directions, and, and chose to avoid criticism rather than continue his policy because he just didn't have the stomach to watch like the stock market go down. So in, in your mind, what's the answer? Does the Fed need to act immediately with the taper? I assume you think they're already too late. Uh, and what about raising rates? Well, I don't know what the Fed should do. I don't, I don't run the Fed. I observe what the Fed does. And quite frankly, sometimes you go from good choices and choosing between them to a good choice and a bad choice to a mediocre choice and a bad choice. And I think they've kind of driven the train you know, down the tracks and kicked the can down the road. And they may only be faced with bad choices at this point. So now it's a little, it's a little late to say, well, now what should they do? Well, in, in the letter that preceded the one that I, I got my hands on this morning, you, you suggested that they need to immediately end QE and that they need to, quote, rapidly increase rates to deal with inflation. That's not what I said. What I said is, is their plan is to gradually eliminate QE and to gradually raise, raise rates. So that's, that's what their plan is. I'm just not sure that that's going to be realistic in being successful in fighting the level of inflation that we, that we have. But do, do you think that they should immediately end QE and, and raise rates as soon as they possibly can to deal with the very issues that you lay out? Well, I don't know. They're really left with bad choices because if they act very aggressively, financial assets will go down a lot. It could cause another recession. The blame that was there in 2018 could be much worse this time because our fiscal and monetary policies are already so much more stretched even than, than they were three years ago. I don't really know what would happen and, and I don't really have advice to them what, what to do. But, but what's, what's interesting to me is that you're positioned very carefully for rising inflation throughout a number of different sectors, whether it's housing or air freight or basic materials like copper and cement and paperboard. The, the number of stocks that you've listed in your most recent letters um, directly tackle the issue of inflation, if you will. There's Green Brick Partners. Um, that's your largest position. Is that currently the case? Yes. Yes, it is. And, and the reason we're positioned for inflation is we believe that whether the Fed acts or doesn't act, there's, there's going to be quite a lot of inflation. You know, and yes, Green, Green Brick is our largest position. What's what catches my eye, too, is that you have a lot of positions in smaller cap stocks. And I'm wondering why it's the, the smaller cap names that have have caught your eye here. Uh, I mentioned air freight. Atlas Air Worldwide, AAWW, that's a $2 billion market cap. Uh, Kimor's is $5 billion. Graphic Packaging is $6 billion. Now, Tech Resources in the copper area is $15 billion. But is there something about that strategy that has specifically targeted small caps? Well, we have the quaint view that ownership of a company represents a fractional ownership of a business, which is tied to their cash flows and their profits over some period of time or over their existence. And when we look at companies of this size, of the characteristics that we found, we're finding extraordinary uh, values. These companies trade at very, very low multiples of book value and price to earnings and cash flows. And in many cases, or a number of cases, they're positioned to essentially repurchase all the shares of the company over the next few years if the, if the values don't improve. 
Can you give me more specifics on any of these names? I think our viewers would love to hear your your, you know, bull thesis behind, let's say, a Greenbrick Partners, for example. If it is your largest position, why is it? Sure. Greenbrick Partners. And just so you understand, I'm the chairman of the company and we own about a third of it. It is a home builder and land developer, and they're in Dallas and Atlanta and Vero Beach, Florida and Colorado Springs, essentially places where people are, are going. And it's a wonderful business. Since we brought it public in 2014, the revenues have compounded growth at 28%, and the pre-tax profits have compounded growth at 44%. Our return on equity right now is 30%, and our growth right now is faster than it's been over the average that I just told you for those periods of time. Meanwhile, the company's expected to earn about $3.75 this year, so the PE is about six times. So you get a six times earnings on a company that's been growing top line 28% for more than half a decade. We have about twice as much land as we did a year ago. We have a huge level of backlog. Our margins are rising. Prices are going up faster than our costs. And our costs are going up, but prices are going up even faster. So this seems like like an extraordinary situation to me. You've seen a lot of talk, obviously, about ESG, which you say is inflationary in and of itself, and you have positions to, to play that as well. Is Consol and, and Gulfport directly related to your views on ESG and inflation? Well, I think ESG has an impact of reducing investment in, in mostly in fossil fuels. And so what we have now is we've had systemic underinvestment in fossil fuels. And the result is, is socially it's just not, uh, it's not acceptable to you know, make a new coal mine or something like that. So even as coal prices go up, normally the, the cure for high prices is high prices because capacity comes on. But nobody's going to you know, open up a new coal mine just because coal prices have gone up, and yet they've gone up a lot. So when you look at something like CEIX, it's about a billion-dollar market capitalization, and we actually think that they could have a billion dollars of profits over the next 12 to 18 months. You laid out today um, what I guess you, you could characterize as a, a maybe a more bullish case for Sonos, um, which you've added to. You've you've owned it uh, for a while, but you said you made it a position, quote, worthwhile to discuss. Why was it attractive enough to you to, to add to it and make it a, a much larger size in your portfolio than it was before? Well, it went from being a very small position to a small position. So it's, it's still not very large. But the added thing that happened this quarter, because the company's been executing nicely for some time and has a good product and good growth prospects, and the management is very disciplined on costs, and so the, the, the sales have actually flown through into earnings. But the extra thing is this year is, is that the, the ITC found that Google was infringing on some of their patents. And we actually think that they have an intellectual property portfolio, which is infringed upon by a lot of the large tech players. And so there's a possibility somewhere down the line that they'll be able to license those patents and get an extra revenue stream and at a very high margin that's not yet really factored into the estimates. You write a lot as well over the last couple of letters of, of yours about growth versus value and, and how the trade was going in your favor uh, for a while before reversing itself, which you called deflating. Where do you see that heading now relative to where you think interest rates may go because of the inflation concerns that you have? I really don't know. I don't know when growth is going to stocks are going to do different than value stocks. And by the way, I think that growth is just a uh, generally is a is a component of value. In other words, values companies are worth more if they're growing faster. But sometimes growth has become sort of a shorthand from we don't really care what the valuation is at all, and we're just going to buy it because we like the top line story. 
um, you know, there's been a, a huge run over the last half decade or more of growth stocks as defined that way compared to value stocks. And um, I don't know when it's going to change. There have been a couple times where I thought that it might be turning our way, but it's been sort of a, a, a false signal. And, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know when it will change. We're going to stick to the view, though, that the value of a company has something to do with the earnings and the cash flows and the assets of the company and try to make sensible investments. Along I, I, I also forgive me for forgive me for interrupting you. I, I also notice you hold gold. Um, and I was going to ask you about Bitcoin, because people say that Bitcoin and crypto has replaced gold. And you clearly must have a different view of that. Why gold over Bitcoin, assuming that you don't own any crypto at all? Yeah, well, I have a, uh, a clear view that gold is a monetary asset, that it's a that it's a currency and it's a currency that's not you know, created. Um, the amount of gold above ground is pretty much the same all of the time. And it doesn't it doesn't really change. Cryptocurrencies are very complicated. There's new ones coming up every day. And the technology is uh, complicated. I'm not negative on them. They've done extremely well. They may continue to do extremely well. And um, I just haven't chosen to, uh, to invest in them at this point. I'm sure you figured I was going to ask you about Tesla. And I'll do it in the context of the earnings coming up and the fact that Dr. Michael Burry of the big short fame told CNBC earlier this week that he's no longer short through puts. I had Jim Chanos on with me the other day who said he is still short. Uh, it's a small short position now through puts. Um, what about you? Tesla, well, I'm not really sure what they do. Do they um, have the same shareholders as Upstart? Okay, so that tells me that you're still, uh, <laughs> you're still negative, the company. Do, do you still have a, a short position? I'm not uh, discussing individual short positions these days. That does, that's something we've stopped doing a while ago. Okay. Um, what, what do you make of the fact, though, of that company's ability, and maybe some other names that at one point in time you, you were short, to sort of defy the odds when it comes to the, the fundamental research that you've done? And, and I'm sure you pride yourself as a fundamental analyst. Doing the analysis of names that you say, this stock should not be trading anywhere near uh, what it is and yet it defies gravity and continues to trade up despite the fact that you don't think it, it should. Has that changed your view on shorting stocks in general? We've had to change the way we go about shorting uh, stocks in general because what's happened over the last couple of years is the what I'll call the right tail of the distribution has changed. In other words, what happens if you're wrong with something? Historically, when we were short things, if we made a really, really big mistake and like maybe the company was taken over, you could lose 25 or 30 percent. Or if they had a great quarter, maybe you would lose 15 or 20 percent if it was truly, if you were truly, truly wrong. And then you'd have an opportunity to think about what you wanted to do next. And what's happened in the last couple of years is, you know, sometimes the stock can be up 200 percent in a day or 500 percent in a day. And that changes how you have to think about, well, what happens if you're wrong about something? And so we've had to adjust the, the characteristics of our short portfolio and the way that we've structured it to take that into account. You say, you know, in case you've been wrong about something, you, you could be right about something. But the, you know, the, the AMC and the, and the GameStop stuff that we witnessed over the last year, you could still be theoretically right about it, not saying that you're involved in these companies at all, but using them as the broader example. You could be 100 percent right in your fundamental thesis about names like that. And yet 
you may not be wrong. The stocks may trade higher as the result of Wall Street bets or or any of those message boards or a, a herd mentality that gets behind names. Has that episode specifically impacted you at all in the way you think about and, and talk about your, your shorts publicly? Well, the way I would characterize it is, you know, we continue to believe that stocks have something to do with the profits and the earnings and the cash flows and the assets of the companies. But we're in a period right now where, where the market has taken the point of view that the stock is worth whatever the market says that it's worth. And that can be completely disconnected from any sense of asset. So in one sense, we can have something like Greenberg Partners, which we talked about, which is growing, you know, 28 percent on the top line and has a P.E. in the mid single digits. And there's other companies that may also be growing or not growing. Um, and they may be trading at price to sales multiples of 20 times or 40 times without any profits or prospects of profits. So this has obviously been a real frustration um, for us as we have uh, been, you know, kind of sticking to our discipline with the view that at some point uh, the values of stocks actually do have something to do with the values of companies. But right now, the people who have a different view of that have more money than we do, and they seem to be setting the tone for things. Let me bring it back uh, as we wrap it up to to how we started, and that's kind of talking about the market overall and inflation. And Paul Tudor Jones, another thing that he said today that I thought was pretty interesting was that if interest rates go to where he think they might go, three and a half to four percent, that the multiple of the S&P is going to have to compress pretty substantially, that you could maybe see a 35 to 40 percent decline in stocks if that scenario plays out the, the way it is. Are you positioning yourself as well as you look at the long names that you think could benefit from inflation? an overall market view that as inflation rises to levels that you think it may, that the overall market is going to have a, a pretty difficult time, the likes of which PTJ suggests? No, I, I'm not bearish like that. And um, I don't really think that interest rates are going to three and a half or four percent. I don't think the Fed can allow that to happen. So I think they'll control the yield curve. I'm not saying rates can't go up somewhat from here, but I don't think they're going to go up a lot. The, the victim of, uh, of a policy that fails by, by limiting the interest rates in the face of whatever the fiscal problems are and the inflation problems might just be a weaker dollar. It's good to have you back. As I said, it's been a long time. Good to talk Pleasure. to you again. I appreciate you being here. And thank you. And congratulations again on the 10 years. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. That's David Einhorn of Greenlight joining us. We have another big guest coming up, the activist investor Nelson Peltz with us. Jim Cramer just sat down. He's going to join the conversation. The investment committee is here. We welcome everybody in next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. Go back. Dow hitting a record high. It's first since mid-August. Our investment committee, as I said, joining me today. Stephanie Link is here. Jenny Harrington, Joe Terranova, and of course, CNBC's Jim Cramer. He's the host of Mad Money. It's good to see everybody. It's great to have you here. Yeah. Uh, new record uh, again. So Tom Lee raises his target to 4,800. We're chasing it again. Correction. That's it. Done. Well, I think that this is the seasonally strongest period. Down a couple of days, but a 23-year period, as Larry Williams tells me, uh, you can find this moment very typical 
uh, it is what happens. Now, I've got to tell you, I listen to every, of course, we all listen to everybody. We listen to Paul Tudor Jones. And there are people who are actually talking the big book. And the big book is Jay Powell's an idiot. They don't see, use the term idiot because it's too harsh. But if we were in a football game, what they would say is, you know, Jay Powell has had, he's three and out, three and out, three and out, three and out. Let's, let's fire him. I look at it the other way. I think that Jay Powell's presided over tremendous wealth creation that's actually including everybody this time. So, uh, But has he also, in the same sense of doing that, has he inflated this tremendous inflationary environment that I'm thinking that, you know, do, do you need a, you know, they know nothing? Well, I can't again. do that because what happened is that there are a lot of companies that scrapped their CapEx plans because they were in the middle of a pandemic. And it's hard to just kind of turn the switch, whether it be Sanjay Marotra, whether it be PPG, whether it be Dow Chemical. You just can't switch and say, you know what, we're going to spend CapEx. We're not the Chinese using the Eighth Army to build plants overnight. We are America, and we, it takes a long time to build a plant. We are not able to do it in time. We, it, we're not going to take the 10 years that it took to you to have this unbelievably great show. And I don't mind saying that. I do want to say before we get into the nitty gritty, you know, I, there is a day I go that I don't watch your show. I watch every minute of your show. You're, and a lot of times, what do I want to do? I came out, out last here? week. And you said, Jim, there's no time. <laughs> because you're so, so great. And I just congratulate you. No, we, we so much appreciate your support. Uh, we love when you run out here, too. I'm going to make you do that a lot. So be ready. Well, I ran out on PayPal. A guy wanted to sell it at 50. I mean, maybe he wants to buy Pinterest. What about pay- PayPal for Pinterest? Well, my, look, my child trust owns PayPal. I think Dan Schulman's a really wise man. If he can think of a reason to own it, I might be able to go with it. Uh, I think uh, Microsoft, it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Why would it work out with PayPal? I mean, I think Twitter would have worked out because Twitter's got direct messaging and Twitter really helps companies. If you, and he wouldn't mind getting rid of all the assassins, right? I mean, this, this the, the, a lot of the people in my mentions column, they were pretend, they're channeling the late Jack Tatum. Okay. They call them assassins. I, I get the reference. Um, all right, Jenny Harrington. So put your market view into perspective along with Paul Tudor Jones today on this network talking about the risk of inflation, how he sees it. David Einhorn sees the same thing, but maybe not as dramatic uh, of, a, of a pullback for the market if rates do rise. I think it's all about moderation, right? And and so then I was watching yesterday's show, too, where you had um, Brad Gerstner on. And I feel like all three of them are taking a generally cautious stance, more or less. We're all long investors. We're all invested in the market. None of us are willing to get bearish. None of us are willing to, I think, take big short calls. But I think there's apprehension and hesitation out there. And that is because we don't really know what's going to happen with inflation. We don't know if it's going to be normal inflation to, you know, two and a half percent range. We don't know if it might get a little bit stronger than that. So I think there's just a lot of. What if I told you it was going to be stronger? What if I told you it was going to be stronger? Because I think the the risk is to the upside at this point. I think we can clearly say that. So if I told you that inflation was going to be hotter than you think for longer than you expect, how would that impact the way you're investing in the market? How would you advise people to play that? Well, I think this is what's so cool and tricky about the environment that we're in now, right? As a dividend investor, historically, way back, you would hear interest rates going up. And what do you want to back off of? You'd historically want to back off of my kind of stocks. Historically, when interest rates and inflation are up a lot, you'd want to back off of the, um, the bond equivalents, the ones that produce a lot of income. 
but that's changed. And so what's getting hurt now by higher inflation and higher interest rates is actually the really high tech stocks that have been supported by super the, the ability to borrow at super, super low rates. So if you told me, Scott, that you were sure that inflation was going to be up a lot and interest rates might follow that, I would actually back off of the trade that's worked so well over the past decade. I think that's been supported by unbelievable easy money. And easy money ultimately messes up that risk-reward profile, and it causes people to take more risk and be more comfortable taking risk than they were in the past. I equate it to like on the rare event when I'm actually winning at Monopoly versus my son, and I have like all this extra money, I buy a cabin on every property, I buy a, you know, a tent, a hotel, whatever, mm-hmm. on every property. Okay, fine, we play the National Parks Edition. <laughs> so, so I buy the properties all over, and I'm very cavalier with my risk-taking in Monopoly. And I think if you were to tell me, like that's kind of what's been going on, but... If we have high inflation and we have higher interest rates, the risk return equation that we've been playing with for the past decade, that starts to change. And where you want to take risk is going to be in in a lot of the stocks that David was just talking about when he was saying, and I wrote it down, I thought it was such a good way to say it, where he said, you, you know, I want to believe that the value of a company is still related to the cash flows, to the value of the assets. And he said, um, he said, I think that over the past decade, saying growth has really just been, I invest in growth has been really a way just to say, say like, I don't care about valuations anymore. I think valuations and cash flows and asset values really start to matter when it costs you to borrow money. So, so Stephanie Link, what, what I, I noticed today that jumps out to me the most, and I'm, I'm sure it will to Jim as well, is you bought Facebook as a new position, <laughs> uh, which Jim, you saw there, clearly yeah. likes. But yes. why, why that stock today? Well, you know I'm leaning more cyclical, more reopen. So I always look for to balance out my portfolio. We've talked about the barbell. And this is the other side of the barbell for sure. But this is a stock that's down 11% from its highs. It trades at 20 times forward estimates, which I think are conservative. They're going to post 60 to 65% total revenue growth for 3Q. And that actually is going to slow over time. Maybe it's 25, 30% is more sustainable, but that is still a very attractive valuation for the growth that you're getting. So the, the biggest question uh, is the expense growth. We know that's going to be high. That's going to be the thing to watch when they report earnings. I'll buy more if the expense growth is higher than, than the 35% that's kind of speculated. But these guys have, uh, they have scale, they have growth, they have profitability, they have engagement. And I also think there's upside to their ad platform. So I think this is growth at a reasonable price. And that's kind of what I look for when I'm looking on the growth side of my portfolio. Jim, I mean, it's so interesting that, and look, Brad Gerstner was with us yesterday. Yes, and I don't, it's great to you. So he, he made the case for, for Facebook. Uh, again, what I find so interesting is that investors like Brad and investors like Steph and, and everybody else seemingly who's in this name and continue to believe in it, look past all of the warts well, and I the say, noise, and they look at it as just that. I, I don't believe this Frances Haugen is done. I think she probably has some more magic bullets, but I do think that you know, you get this revelation, 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 and then you get the book of revelations, which, you know, frankly, uh, I don't read. And I've got to tell you, I think that in the end, America's not reading. America wants whatever Facebook's now going to be called. I think metaverse is the most exciting thing in the world. I'm, like, hung up on the metaverse, uh, you know, on Unity. I hung up on what NVIDIA's doing. We're not even paying attention to what he's doing. Uh, you could even own this stock for the metaverse. It is going to be incredible. 
you know, we've never really cared about all of the regulatory noise or, or any of the negativity it's around this thing. We do for 10 minutes. Well, no, I mean, look, if someone, they actually would like a little regulation. I mean, we saw that from Snap, too. They want somebody to tell them what are the guardrails. I am doing a lot of work on that, the committee that they put together that is kind of like a Supreme Court for Facebook. I think it's, it's surprising. All of those people don't play for dinner. They're all people who are independent. Let's see what they say. So, Joe, I want to hear from you quickly before I bring in Nelson Peltz. Look, you, you're the one who said on Monday that the bottom is in and the market's done nothing, mm-hmm. I'm sure, to dissuade you from that point of view. No. And you're entering a seasonal period where positive momentum take hold. So the winners will continue to win. And you see that right now with Bitcoin and energy. Uh, I think that should be your expectation moving forward. The FANGs will continue to do well in financials, which is uh, the largest sector allocation that I personally have. Uh, that should work as well. You're also at $884 billion in terms of stock buyback authorizations for S&P 500 companies. That is going to accelerate here in the coming weeks. So I think the next 60-day period is going to be a very strong one for the market. I'm not guided by whether we have inflation or not. I'm guided by my process. Uh, you know that my process has taken me to a significant overweight towards financials and technology. I just don't see them being the long duration asset that others do. They are more asset like businesses. And now that we've got Vietnam, Malaysia and Taiwan coming back online, I think we're going to have some good news with the semis. New closing highs, as we said, at least right now, S&P and the Dow. We'll see how things shake out. But certainly the tone of the market appears to have changed dramatically over the last week or so. Let's get the view now of Nelson Peltz. He is the CEO of Tri-End Partners. Nelson, welcome back. It's nice to have you on the program again. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you. Congratulations for 10 years. Who would have thought, Scotty? I'll tell you what, I, I wouldn't have, but uh, it's great to have. It's great to, to be here, and it's great to have you with us. You know Jim Cramer and the gang are, are here as well. Um, what a day. I, I mean, you know, new, new closing highs, Nelson, on a day where you've got Paul Tudor Jones and David Einhorn on the network talking about inflation. How do you see things? Look, I, I think we've got inflation, uh, clearly, but the inflation is a lot of people making more money. And I'm not just talking about guys like me and the guests on your show. I'm talking about the, the average Joe whose wages have gone up as a result of COVID, as a result of the scarcity. And I think that's a good thing. I think the fact that they have more money to spend, the big thing is to get them to go back to work. And the fact that they have more money to spend, they're going to buy a little bit more Wendy's. They're going to buy some snacks from Mondelez. (laughs) They're going to buy their toothpaste from P&G. And and on and on, they're going to spend some extra money invested in Invesco. So I think that's all good for the economy. I am not as much of a bear on interest rates as many may think, because there are very few people in the world, very few groups in the world that need higher interest rates. Home buyers don't need it. Governments don't need it. And uh, the dollar doesn't need it. So I, I, I think that we're going to have some inflation. I think some of it is good. Some of it always is not good. But uh I don't see tragedy coming along here. Because, oh, I mean, your, your companies are in the thick of it, right? Whether it's P&G yesterday yep. talking about it. You've got wage pressures at, at Wendy's, uh, labor issues, right? Um, everybody is talking about it. 
especially in the area where you cut your teeth. I mean, consumer packaged you know, goods is where you've made your living. Everybody's complaining, but everybody's earnings are up. Everybody's sales are up. So keep complaining. Keep sticking me, okay? <laughs> it's, things are getting better. You know, the market really missed P&G's earnings yesterday. P&G sales were up 5% over a quarter. That was fantastic. Okay, they missed consensus by one percent. And yet people don't understand that we had the the covid elite, you know, the Cloroxes and the Campbells who did so well during covid. And the minute it looked like covid was over, their sales fell out of bed. Well, P&G was not part of that. P&G sales continue to climb. People continue to want to use their products. The same thing at Mondelez, the same thing over and over again. They kept going to Wendy's. Yeah, we can't get help at Wendy's, and that's a pain. And it's hard to get some products at Wendy's. But nonetheless, Wendy's is doing pretty damn good. So we're going to learn to deal with this new phenomenon. People hopefully will go back to work. I think that's very important. And when we talk about the markets, Todd, what we were thinking about, we were talking about this not long ago. Think about people who've been in the market and in their 30s. They have never seen a down market. To them, a down market is, re- is like reading about World War I. This is there's true. No, there's seven. There's, they're looking there's, at there's it today no, and they're thinking the same thing. The market only goes one way. Well, at least right now, right. I, I know Kramer wanted to get Nel- in here, Nelson, too. Nelson, and you're right. I was whenever Proctor. They're going to be able to put through price increases, so they're going to have great margin expansion within a year. I want to talk about you. I, right. I know you very well. Why? Yeah. I'm going to ask you, maybe you think it's rhetorical. You are a very wealthy individual. Congratulations, because I know that you made it yourself. You are Thank surrounded you. by young people, more young people than I know of anyone who is of your age. You share a positive attitude that I often find among younger people. It seems to have trumped your view of whatever you could hurt a billionaire. The billionaires come on. They seem to be out of touch. You are in touch. Do you think that kind of do you think that influences your relatively positive outlook? Absolutely. You know, Jimmy, you're right. I've got 10 kids. I've got a lot of young kids. Their friends all hang around all the time. I have a different view of life. I'm going to be 80 at my next birthday. People my age, they say to the wife, honey, where are we having dinner tonight? Is it going to be four or 30? That's not my life. Okay. From these kids. And I watch them on the Internet. And I watch what they do, and I can't do what they can do, but they give me a whole different view of the world, and I like my view better than some of these old guys. All right, so no, no early bird special for you. And, and let me, I no. want to, I want to ask you something about P and G. You know what time we had dinner last night, Scott? Come on. I do, I do. It was not Where'd at four thirty. Uh, more about that later. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is a Freudian slip or not, but when you were talking about P and G, you said we. Uh, and, of course, you announced recently you're leaving the board. And I'm wondering why, if it appears to me from your comments today, that you still obviously care a lot about the direction of this business. Of course I do. I'm still a major shareholder. I made a lot of friends from top to bottom, 
from John and David and on through. I'm rooting for those guys every day. I was on too many boards. I was on five boards. I'm, out, I'm now down to a mere three. I got down to two for about a second and a half and wound up being drafted on another board. But the fact is that I love PNG. I'm very proud of the changes they made. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it starts with an argument. It starts with a fight. And then we wound up to be great friends. And David Taylor and John Muller, I still consider really good friends of mine. I spoke to John yesterday. And, you know, he listened to what I said. I'm not a director anymore, but he heard me. And uh, I, I'm very proud of the changes they made. I'm very proud of what P&G is today. And uh, love being on the board, but it was time for me to move on. Okay. Let me ask you about Wendy's, which you said you are, you know, you're, you're chairman of the board. We, we know that. Why is the stock underperformed McDonald's, Nelson? Year to date, MCD up 13, Wendy's up one and a half. One year, MCD up six and a half, Wendy's down seven. What's going on with that? I can ask you the same question. I have no idea. I think the company's doing great. We just opened in the UK. We, we have more stores coming online. Same store sales are up. We became the number two hamburger guy in North America. Finally unseated Burger King. So I don't know why the stock is down, but that's life. The company's doing well over any period of time. It's going to reflect great value. Don't forget, we got into this stock at roughly four bucks, no dividend. Today it's paying close to, you know, 48 cents. Stock is in the 20s. I'm not happy, but it's better than a sharp stick in the eye. <laughs> Didn't you just have Jim? Did you just have Wendy's on? I've had Wendy's on recently, and I, I too, am surprised that the stock isn't higher. It represents a very good buy. They have a lot of momentum. Uh, I think that what people, it got memed. It, it jammed up to 28. Got some bad holders there as the uh, apes circled it or whatever they do. Uh, but the look, I, there's absolutely no doubt about it. If you like that group, you should like that stock. You know, Nelson, I hear you talk about these things. Hey, and it Scott, sounds, Scott, yeah, yeah. Scott, Scott, hold on. Is Julia there? You know Julia? Julia. Julia. Julia's got a surprise for you, Scott. Oh. Uh-oh. Oh, my. Oh, jeez. Pass the, pass the fries, partner. Oh, see, now... Now, now you're trying to influence. You're trying to influence the interviewer through his stomach. I'm not going to start throwing softballs at you now, Nelson. You're influenced. They're great cut fries. They're great cut. You're but let me tell you about the fries. Pass the baconator, will Did you bring the baconator? I'll eat some off camera. I'll eat some later. Come on, have it on camera. I'm not going to have it on camera. Let me ask you this: You sound like unflappable about about pretty much anything, whether it's inflation or. You know, Wendy's is not doing as great as Come you want it to do. What are you worried about? What, what are you worried about? Are you you're not worried about inflation? You're not worried about, you know, prices going up that much. You think companies are going to be able to handle it, especially the stronger ones. What are you worried about? I worry about when people are going to understand that this is a stock market of things other than fangs and a couple of other stocks, that there are great companies out there that have been in business for a very long time, 
They don't grow as fast as the fangs. They don't have the built-in fear that I would have. What are the governments going to do to these companies? Those are some of the things I worry about. I worry about everything, okay? But the fact is, I like what's going on. I do worry about inflation. I do worry about our government because, you know, each government we have is worse than the last. I worry about them raising interest rates, which we don't need. I worry about pulling out of Afghanistan too early. I can tell you a lot of things I worry about. What's an acceptable corporate rate since we're on that topic about D.C.? If, if, if rates are going to go up, if cor- the corporate, let's just say the corporate rate is going to move off of the level that it is now. You sit in the boardrooms, you think about these issues. What's an acceptable rate to you if you have to say it's going to go up? Don't, I'm not going to get into that. I'm not an economist. I don't know those things, but I lived through an era, era when I was issuing junk bonds at 15%. Thrilled to do it. Thrilled to do it. So I, I, I've seen the other side of this coin. This is free money. Maybe this free money gets a little bit more expensive. But other than that, I, I don't, I'm not concerned that it's going to get real expensive, that it's going to hurt things. Well, I don't ask, think so. Maybe me, I'm wrong. Let me ask you it this way. If, if you were maybe if, you know, a month or two ago more concerned about aspects of the Biden agenda being, being passed, today it certainly seems weaker than it was then. Uh, Manchin seems, Senator Joe Manchin, um, seems to be one of, if not the most powerful person in Washington these days, with all due respect, of course to the president of, of the United States. Is that how you see it? You are 100 percent right. Joe is the most important guy in D.C., yes. maybe the most important guy in America today. He is cre- he is keeping our elected officials somewhere in the middle and anywhere center right to center left works for me. It worked forever in this country until we had these elected officials who started pushing us to the extremes where it doesn't work, where it's uncomfortable. This is still capitalism. It's not socialism. Okay, this is still a meritocracy, and we better keep it that way. We have, and our problem, let me finish, our problem is that the elected officials today are myopic. They can't see past eight feet across the aisle to see the guy from the other party. Our enemies are across the ocean. They're not across the aisle. And these guys we sent to Washington better learn that and better learn how to get along. And Manchin is showing them the way and they they're fighting them. But I got to take my hat off to Joe, who's been an old friend of mine for 10 years. I call him every week and say, Joe, you're doing great. Say, say tough. Stay tough, buddy. He's phenomenal. Let, let me ask you a, a couple more things, if I could, before I let you go. I'm speaking of adversaries, if you will. How do you see China today? What advice are you giving CEOs in the boardrooms you're in about how to deal with, with China? You've noticed the crackdown on various industries as, as well as we have. How do you see it playing out? 
You know, it's it's fascinating. China is fascinating because the companies that we're invested in have very big China businesses. And I worry every day that the government might change their attitude toward them. So far, they haven't. And part of the reason I believe is that they they manufacture such a high percentage of what they sell in China, which means we're employing people, we're building factories, and we're reinvesting our profits back into the country instead of taking it out in dividends. So what's wrong with that picture? What people need to understand in China is that China, and they're not going to like this word, the leader in China today is a dictator. They call him president. But when you're president for life, if you were president for life at the Dominican Republic, you would be a dictator. We have a dictator in China. When you have dictators, they only keep their position because they have strength around them. Normally, normally it's from the generals. And, and so this man has done an amazing job in China. On the other hand, he is a dictator and he's got his group of people in China, whoever they may be, that he's got to make happy. And if making happy means that, and someone was saying to me the other day, that we all look at an economy in the shape of a triangle. This guy looks at an economy in the shape of an egg with a very strong center, and I think that's fine. But I got to tell you something. I worry about China. I worry who's, who's pulling the strings there. And when you're president for life, the question is, how long is your life? Let me let me end by asking you um, one more question, and I'm doing it because I have Stephanie Link here, um, who is the most bullish person on my investment committee about General Electric. OK, she's been in the stock a long time. She's added to it on the way down. Um, what's the current state of, of your position? I remember when you said you sold two thirds, I think, and you said you wish you sold three thirds. Um, but what about today? Do you think that the company is turning itself around? Absolutely. I just look, watch, watch earnings, watch sales. You have a company that there is nothing more you can do bad to a company. The, they had the best, uh, uh, the, the, the best airline, Air Force, airplane business in the world. And they got shut down. Okay, that's coming back. They've got a manager, manager I rarely ever met any who can hold his jacket. Culp is phenomenal. And let me tell you something, he's done a great job and it will start to show itself. And, you know, you'll either believe it or not, but time will prove it. So he's great. The company has got pieces of the company that are fantastic. He's dealing with the difficult parts. I think I think everybody, the investors, will be pleasantly surprised over some period of time that they've stayed in it. And, uh, yeah, you're right. I, I sold a third in the 30s. I wish I sold three-thirds. <laughs> I would have bought it back here, but I didn't. I, 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 we've lived through it at Tryon, and I think we've got a, a horse that's phenomenal in leading this company.
I loved our conversation. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for the lunch as well. We, I know the, the uh, folks here are going to appreciate the that. The fries are fantastic. Jimmy, <laughs> look forward to seeing you, buddy. Thanks, guys. Thank All you. Right. Thank you, Nelson. That's Nelson Peltz of Tryon joining us uh, today to help celebrate our 10th. All right, the Dow, as we said, hitting record highs. We've got some more trades ahead right after this break. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Another record setter on Wall Street. CNBC's Leslie Picker sat down with PIMCO CIO just moments ago talking inflation and the Fed. Let's listen. The Fed is betting on inflation remaining under control. Uh, and there are some risks that if it isn't under control, they'll need to move more abruptly. And again, that could have spillover effects into financial market uh, volatility more broadly. So I think they're trying real hard. I think they're doing the best they can do under highly uncertain situation or circumstances. But sure, you know, there's a risk that um, that they won't get things perfectly right. And we will have a much more volatile 2022 if inflation. You can find that full interview plus much more at CNBC.com delivering alpha events. And later today, don't miss Leslie's exclusive interview with PIMCO CEO Manny Roman, live from PIMCO HQ. That is on the closing bell. You'll definitely want to see that. But obviously, inflation is the word of the day. All right, Stephanie Link, you heard what Nelson said about GE. I had to bring it up since you were here. What do you think? Thank you. Made me smile. Uh, I agree with them 100%. It's a restructuring story. Culp is doing a great job. They're doing asset sales. They're streamlining the businesses, and they're focusing on what they do well. Healthcare, aviation, renewables. Free cash flow has positively surprised me, and I think it's going to positively surprise the street by the end of this year. Are you a smiley today about IBM and what you expect after the bell with, with their earnings? Because I think, you know, hopefully you heard what Jim Chanos had to say earlier in the week uh, about IBM, that he's short that stock. He accused the company of financial engineering. Um, They obviously have come back and and denied a lot of what he had to say. But nonetheless, what's your view? I own this stock because of the cloud strategy and how they are totally transitioning away from old school businesses to new. And I actually am very positive about them spinning out the infrastructure outsourcing business. That was a hit to sales by 100 to 150 basis points because it's such low margin stuff. So he was complaining about that being financial engineering. I just don't agree at all. And at 13.5 times earnings with a 4.5% dividend yield, I'm willing to wait for this transition into a better growth story occur. Yeah, I mean, he obviously questions what they're really earning. 
um, in terms of their their EPS as well. A, a lot of people have. A lot of people. A lot of people have. A lot of people have done that in the past. I think that's one of the reasons why the stock trades so cheaply. I really do. Yeah, Jim. Yeah, look, th- these people are the, some of the straightest shooters in the world. I mean, we have a lot of people on all the time, and I, I wouldn't trust them when they talk about gap or anything. What they're going to do? Arvin Christian's doing a very good job. I like the strategy. I, I think it's an inexpensive stock. I mean, look, I, I remember at delivering Alpha. I don't know, was it five, six years ago when Stan Druckenmiller? was talking about IBM using the same words, financial engineering, and talking about their, their buybacks. And that was principally the, the strategy. So it, Samus is not the only one over the years no, talking no, about the, balance sheet's the mechanics not perfect. of what IBM's The balance sheet's done. not perfect, but I just think that they're getting rid of the slower, doubling down on the faster. Hybrid cloud is great. I think can pull the strategy off the stock's a big stock. All right. We uh, take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Have another big lineup tomorrow on halftime, including Nancy Davis, Ricky Sandler, Mario Gabelli, Keith Meister. Looking forward to talking to everybody again tomorrow. What do you have coming up on Mad okay, tonight? Okay, uh, Qualtrics. Uh, by the way, just so you know, someone might uh, know the Qualtrics people as spin off of SAP. Others might know Ryan Smith is the owner of uh, the Utah Jazz. He's uh, fantastic, and I think that's a great business intelligence company. Mark Schiller trying to turn Hain around. I think he's doing it. And I think Hain's a very interesting st- organic food story. I mean, when I said, thank you so much for your support of the oh, program. Are you kidding me? Ten years? Wow. And, you know, I just, I love you. I love you outside of the office, too. I love you. I, I will not mention what I think because people don't like to do that. But, you know, if she were here, it would be fantastic. All right. Thank you. It's mutual, by the way. What's your final trade? Okay. I'm going with PayPal. I've seen this thing now obliterated. Honest to God, if they, buy, if they buy Pinterest now, it actually might go up. And I don't want them to buy Pinterest because every time I sign up for Pinterest, I get spammed a gazillion times. But I have used Pinterest to be able to buy presents for my wife. Okay. Good man. Jenny. IBM. I like to go with the smart money. And the smart money is Stephanie Link. She laid out a perfect investment thesis on it. And I think in addition to that, as they spin off this Kindrel, as they report earnings, people are going to be getting a fresher and fresher look and seeing how much value there really is here. Okay. That's another owner of the stock uh, speaking right there, just to make sure we're all clear. All right, Steph. I like L3 Harris. They've got great program wins, above peer average margins, and a book to build north of one. I think the quarters are going to be very strong. The man with the ETF, Joe T. The breakout in Bank of America is so real post-earnings. The stock is going well above 50. Stock is cheap. Business is doing fantastic. Merrill Lynch franchise is the best. Helps that rates are going up, what, 164? We're knocking on the door today. I mentioned the kind of day we're having in the stock market. Closing highs for the Dow and the S&P. We'll see if it holds. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. 
We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.